It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple Best in Indiana Journalism Award-winning public affairs program now in its 14th year, as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. While the Bring It On crew takes a break for Veterans Day, we have produced a special Bring It On broadcast highlighting two interviews with a focus on black veterans and a retrospective look at the midterm election outcomes from the year 2014, where a significant number of Democratic seats were lost during President Obama's final two years in office. We begin with a conversation with Thomas T.C. Costley, past national president of the National Association of Buffalo Soldiers and Troopers Motorcycle Club and co-founder and national president of the United States Black Calvary Family. Here now is that interview hosted by anchors William Hosea and Liz Mitchell from November 2nd, 2015. Kicking off tonight's show, Buffalo Soldiers originally were members of the U.S. 10th Cavalry Regiment of the United States Army, formed on September 21st, 1866 at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. This nickname was given to the Negro Cavalry by the Native American tribes they fought. The term eventually became synonymous with all of the African American regiments formed in 1866, 9th Cavalry Regiment, 10th Cavalry Regiment, 24th Infantry Regiment, and the 25th Infantry Regiment. Although several African American regiments were raised during the Civil War as part of the Union Army, including the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry and many United States Colored Troops regiments, the Buffalo Soldiers were established by Congress as the first peacetime all-black regiments in the regular U.S. Army. On September the 6th, 2005, Mark Matthews, who was the oldest living Buffalo soldier, died at age 111. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Mr. Thomas T.C. Costley is a retired United States Air Force Chief Master Sergeant, as well as a retired officer of the New Jersey Department of Corrections. In 1999, T.C. Costley founded the New Jersey Buffalo Soldiers Motorcycle Club and set as its mission the education of the public on the rich history of the 9th and 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers. That same year, T.C. joined five other independent chapters in forming the National Association of Buffalo Soldiers Motorcycle Club. He is also a founder of the United States Black Cavalry Family. This is to partner with local communities to provide hands-on voluntary assistance to organizations supporting the needs of veterans and the welfare of families existing in or near poverty. We have invited Mr. Costley to join us to shed light on his fascinating work in maintaining the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers. Mr. Costley? Good evening. Good evening. How are you? Fine. Welcome to Bring It On. It is so good to hear your voice. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. 
Well, I would like for you to tell our listening audience about the Buffalo Soldiers, those first early years. Uh, For those who may not know, or this may be their first time hearing the word Buffalo Soldiers. Well, the the term Buffalo Soldiers has become very popular here in in later years and profitable to, to many people. But the original Buffalo Soldiers were those blacks, many of whom served during the Civil War. Uh, and then after Congress passed uh, the law in 1866, finally uh, paying blacks to be in the military, uh, they decided to send some of those blacks west. Now, the reason for that was they didn't want to send them south during Reconstruction because they feared that many of those uh, soldiers are now having weapons and lawfully in the military would uh, maybe retaliate against some of those that held them as slaves. So although they were willing to go, uh, members of Congress from the South uh, decided it would be a better idea if they sent them west. And so the the 10th Cavalry uh, went to Fort Leavenworth, and the uh, 9th Cavalry went to New Orleans. And uh, as they went west, the story goes that Bounds saw them gave them the name, uh, specifically the, the Cheyenne, the name Buffalo Soldier. Now, the, the term Buffalo Soldier, uh, uh, from history we learn, had many reasons uh, or many uh, uh, definitions. One, they say it was because the face of the uh, black troops, the new troops going west, and their curly hair reminded them of the the uh, buffalo, and so the name was given Buffalo Soldiers. Others say it was be because of their fighting spirit, and then others say it was because the uh, black soldiers uh, would kill buffalo and use their hides and make coats out of them and would wear those hides uh, during the winter months to keep them warm. So we don't know the, the real meaning of why the name was given, but what we do know is that the black troops, the the Buffalo Soldiers, the Army, the 9th and 10th Cavalry, 24th and 25th Infantry, accepted that name because the 10th Cavalry uh, made the, the Buffalo uh, their, part of their regimental uh, 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 design. So uh, we know it was acceptable. Uh, if it was anything that they felt was demeaning, then they would have never made it a part of their uh, regimental design. Okay, for our listening audience, would you uh, repeat their motto? We can, we will is is the, uh, is the motto that you will see uh, everywhere displayed, including on the uh, Buffalo Soldier Monument in uh, Fort Leavenworth. Okay, we can and we will. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Mr. Costley, this is uh, William Hosea, uh, retired Marine. How are you? It's a pleasure to <laughs> simplify. <laughs> it's a pleasure speaking with a fellow retired veteran. Um, your organization, you are a veterans organization as well as a historical organization. Is that correct? You're absolutely right, sir. Uh, uh, as is uh, many of the Buffalo Soldier uh, chapters across the country, and we have many different Buffalo Soldier organizations, as you probably well know. All of them are not motorcycle 
organizations. We have the 9th and 10th Horse Cavalry who actually ride their uh, horses and maintain uh, original uh, gear and and clothing to represent the the cavalry of that of that time. Uh, I cannot speak for the National Association of Buffalo Soldiers and Troopers and Motorcycle Clubs uh, anymore because I'm not a part of that organization now. But I do know that when we uh, when I was the the national president for that organization, and still today, many of those chapters involve themselves with with uh, helping uh, veterans. Now, my organization now, the the uh, uh, Calvary uh, family, we absolutely uh, try to work with any veteran organizations, and there's so many veteran organizations in the country that need help. So we reach out right. to those as much as possible. So you said there are several um, independent Buffalo Soldier uh, organizations, is that correct? Absolutely. Are are you all um, united in in some way uh, without belonging to, you know, coming under one umbrella? Well, we're uh, uh, united in the the aspect of of serving the community. I think both of those organizations all serve the community, not necessarily just with veterans, but anyone that has a worthy cause, we certainly reach out to them and try to give back uh, as much as we can to the community. Most of us, sir, that can afford to ride $30,000 motorcycles or afford to be able to take care of your uh, horse, which is very expensive just for the boarding, can certainly uh, give something back to the community. And uh, that's what we try to do. And and there are a lot of uh, groups. The the National Organization of Buffalo Soldiers and Troopers Motorcycle Clubs. I think they have over a hundred chapters across America now. Uh, and all of those chapters uh, have a responsibility to to help out in the community. So, uh, as far as my organization now that my wife and I, I uh, co-founded, uh, we do the same thing except we ha- we made it a part of our of our uh, mission statement to have hands-on in the community, which means there are a lot of worthy organizations out in the community that just need a little help, somebody that will come in when they have the time to help in the soup kitchens or, or wherever that help is needed. And that's what we tried to do today, along with uh, helping those veterans groups. Well, Mr. Costley, uh, I was so impressed by you, my husband and I, when we met you in South Carolina. That was our first experience uh, with the, the Buffalo Soldiers. And I came as a, uh, I was originally invited to be the guest speaker. And then I was informed that you were going to be the guest speaker. And I was so pleasantly surprised. And I would like for you, if you would please, to tell the listening audience a little bit about what I heard. And you spoke about Isaac Mays. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor on May the 11th, 1889. And you told the story about escorting him, I guess, finding his body. But I won't give it up. I'll let you tell the story, what you told uh, that audience at the, in South Carolina. Well, uh, Isaiah Mays, yes, was one of the original uh, Buffalo soldiers who uh, received his uh, Medal of Honor or or earned his uh, Medal of Honor for uh, for a battle that he participated in. Not really a battle, it was an ambush. He was part of an escort duty that was uh, transporting uh, funds 
about $28,000 to other forts uh, within uh, uh, Arizona for, for, for pay to the troops. And he was ambushed by about 20 uh, men from the local area. And those 12 people that were uh, escorting that money were under the command of Major Wom. It's pronounced Wom, but it's spelled like Wham, but it's pronounced Wom. So if you would look up this incident, it will be, uh, it's normally under uh, Wom. Uh, but anyhow, he, he was a part of the escort that was ambushed. And when they were ambushed, everyone on that escort duty was wounded. And Isaiah Mays managed to, after being shot uh, uh, several times, managed to crawl and walk uh, as best he could for two miles to, to seek help. Now, his actions earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor. But the sad part about the whole story is that uh, once leaving the military, uh, he became uh, much of uh, of nothing. Uh, he worked very little in, in, in minor jobs, and finally he uh, turned up at a hospital, and he died there. Uh, unknown to anyone at the hospital or anyone in the local area there. And after his death, he was buried in a field right outside the hospital, that was used for, excuse me, that was used for people that had died from tuberculosis. Isaiah Mays stayed in that area for over 100 years without anyone knowing who he was. Finally, a group realized that they had on their hands a Medal of Honor recipient that was buried in a desolate field outside of the hospital. And they began actions to have him uh, recognized uh, and to uh, have some attention drawn to the fact that we have a Medal of Honor recipient here in our area of Arizona that is not being recognized and was not buried honorably. And so members within that area there, the old guard riders and specifically the Buffalo Soldiers of America. This is another group that is not a part of our motorcycle a group here. Uh, and they're under the uh, command there of uh, Chaz uh, Jackson, who lives in the local area. And they, along with the uh, old guard riders, began to pay attention to recognize his grave and to uh, uh, clean up his grave and to ensure that a stone was placed at his grave. And during all of this, they ran across an individual that was a part of the Missing in America project. Now, this is something that I hope your listeners pay very attention to. The Missing in America project is one of the most worthwhile organizations that I have ever participated in. And I'm 72 years old. I just turned 72 a couple of days ago. And I've been to a lot of places, and I've been riding bikes and participating in community affairs for over 58 years. But this Missing in America project will touch your heart. Their job, or their mission, I should say, is to find those veterans throughout America that are 
still in funeral homes that have uh, that whose ashes, whose remains have not been claimed by anyone. They identify these remains by sending them to the huge military lab that's in California. And then they ensure that all of these past veterans receive honorable burial. If any of you could have participated in the first year that they did that, and this organization is led by an individual who I love dearly. His name is Fred Salante, S-A-L-A-N-T-I. He is the founder, the heart and soul behind that organization. And his right-hand man is a guy named Roger Graves, who serves as the road captain for, for these missions that they have. Ma'am and sir, especially you, Mr. Hosea, if you could have been with us when we brought the bodies the first year of three veterans, one was Isaiah Mays, who we talked about, one was James Dunn from Vietnam, and one was Johnny Callahan from World War II. We put the cremated remains of these veterans on the back of a bike, and we traveled across country, stopping at VFWs, stopping at little towns across country. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you that there were people standing out on roads and streets and kids waving flags all the way across country. If we stopped and stayed in a town, they would have the town band come out and celebrate what we were doing for America. To see an old veteran standing by the roadside, holding the flag and saying, God bless America as we traveled across country, it gets no better than that. Your, your heart feels with pride to know that there are Americans from the smallest town in this country to the largest city of New York that respect veterans and know that veterans deserve a decent burial. And we traveled. And as we came across country, other groups would join us at each location until we got outside of Washington, D.C. When we got outside of Washington, D.C., we asked Fred, the leader, if he had an escort already planned to get us through D.C., because if any of you know the D.C. area, you cannot get through D.C. during the traffic hour. It's just impossible. One of our soldiers stepped up. He was a policeman. He called his boss, and within minutes they provided an escort to get us through D.C. and to get us where we had to be so that we could inter these people at Arlington the following morning. It was just a moving experience. And that whole thing, luckily, was documented, documented in a pictorial called Honors at Arlington. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, repeating that story for our listening audience. It's a fascinating story, uh, Mr. Cosley. I'm uh, curious to know if uh, Mr. Mays was the only Medal of Honor recipient from the Buffalo Soldiers. No, sir, he, he was not. Uh, there are so many similar stories to his. We had 23 total 
23 Buffalo soldiers that were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. What about some of the uh, famous battles that, that the Buffalo soldiers uh, participated in? We, we could uh, name battles. The one that would surprise most would be uh, probably uh, the uh, Buffalo soldiers with Teddy Roosevelt uh, in, in Cuba. Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Most people don't even know that the Buffalo soldiers were there. Uh, the cavalry was there, although they were without their horses, because their horses were still in Tampa, Florida, waiting to be shipped over to Cuba. So for that battle, uh, they were uh, uh, infantry for the most part. They were on on foot. But when that was done, when 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 that battle was completed, no one gave recognition, including Teddy Roosevelt to the Buffalo Soldiers until he was pressured to do so by other witnesses that were there and saw just what the soldiers were doing. And this is something they have fought for the whole time that that they were in existence, especially in the settlement of the West from 1866 to, to 1890. There was so much that was accomplished. If you understand what their assignment was, was to cover the Great Plains. That was everything from Texas all the way to, to California that they were covering. To understand that they were the first park rangers in this country. To understand that they even formed a bike corps, that they used the, the, the most soldiers to ride bikes. That would be a feasible thing to replace the horses because they knew overseas, many of the, the, the armed forces overseas used bicycles. And so they, so they had the, the 25th Infantry ride bikes from Fort Missoula in, 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 in uh, Montana all the way to St. Louis, 1,900 miles on well, bicycles. Well, Mr. Costley, it's, uh, it's my understanding that the Buffalo soldiers were paid $13 a month, and that they were given the worst horses, lousy equipment, uh, paid less than the white soldiers. I don't know how much they were paid. The conditions were deplorable. They protected the white settlers moving west, protected the U.S. mail, and built roads. Because of the expansion of America, was due to the Buffalo Soldiers. Am I correct? <laughs> Much of that was, we could argue some of those points. Uh, to, to say that the Buffalo Soldiers was, were, were given uh, deplorable uh, clothing or run-down horses, uh, to be truthful with you, everybody was getting uh, that after the Civil War because the supplies that all the uh, armed forces were getting were those that were left over from Civil War. Okay. You understand? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe they were getting some, but so were other other units. Okay. So I can't say across the board that they were getting anything worse than the other units. But what I can say is that much of what they've done, those things that you listed, were made a part of our history. And so... Uh, yes, they protected stagecoaches. They protected the expansion of settlers going 
West. They were the only law enforcement there, although they could not utilize those things within the towns that they were providing the law for. Oh, my. Right. They ran the, 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 the telegraph wires. There's so much that we can say about them without even touching upon the subject of their relationship with our Native Americans. And that is a story within itself. And I, 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 I talk about this, and I, I try, as I talk with you, Liz, about this, I try to tell people, Everything that was done by the Buffalo soldiers wasn't righteous. There are things that were done to the, the Native Americans that were done to our soldiers. As slaves, we were put on plantations, and we helped to put the Indians on reservations. But what we can say about it is that there are no recorded instances of, of, of atrocities against the Native Americans by the black soldiers. Were we in battle over those many years? Yes, we had 177 skirmishes with Native Americans. But you also have to realize that Native Americans were fighting each other. And our job was not to kill Native Americans. Our job was to protect those that were placed on the reservations and to bring into justice any of those that were out trying to kill the white settlers. So it's a touchy area, and if, if you don't know what you're talking about, you may not want to get into a deep discussion with Native Americans, because to this day, to this very day, we are not respected by all Native Americans. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Mr. Costley, you give uh, presentations about Buffalo soldiers in schools, churches, youth centers, veterans' retirement homes. Uh, etc. I'm curious if you can tell us what kind of response or, or questions do you get from youth, from young people about the Buffalo Soldiers? Uh, we, we get every kind of question that, that you could think about, sir. Uh, from uh, I try to be uh, bring into those presentations, especially with the youth, artifacts from the, from the 18th uh, from the 1800s, we'll bring in. Of course, we can no longer take the the uh, replicas of, of weapons into the schools, but uh, uh, at other presentations, we will bring those weapons that were used. But we'll bring in uh, uh, statues of buffaloes, and we'll bring in paintings, and we'll bring in all the other things they use for their horses and stuff during during those presentations, so the youth can touch and get an understanding of of uh, uh, what it was like to to live during those times, and luckily now uh, we are able to get so many stories in comic book form, and that really draws their attention. But more than anything else, to get their attention is if we just roll up there on our motorcycles, we have their attention. We have their attention right away. And then just to have them understand the transition that the Buffalo Soldiers made from horses to what we ride today, motorcycles, to tell the same story. Uh, they come up with some very interesting questions, and, and depending on what age group is. Uh, but we do not turn down any invitations. I don't care if it's kidney garden. We will develop our 
presentation to meet uh, the understanding of, of that level. Well, I, um, I think we just have a couple of minutes left. And if there's anything else that you feel on your heart that you would like to convey to our listening audience, now is the time to do that, Mr. Costley. Thank you so much. I would just like to let people know how important diversity is in, 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 uh, in our country today. Uh, we need to learn as much as we can about everyone that makes up this beautiful quilt work that we call uh, America. Uh, people probably don't know that there are still black Indians, black Native Americans, specifically the black Seminoles that live in Texas. Their chief is a friend of mine. His name is William Dub Warrior, Chief Warrior. Uh, to have them tell their story, to have them take you to the forts where they used to be in Texas and to see what actually occurred and then to have them invite you into their homes and to let you know how they were mistreated by the Buffalo Soldier as well as the Army in general, how they worked and were scouts for this country and never received anything at all except empty promises. There's a lot that we need to learn about each other. And if you would allow me, I will do as much as I can to come into your community to bring you as much of that knowledge as possible. I will speak with you. I will give you a call. I would love to have you come. Thank you so much. And thank you. Okay, we would like to thank Mr. Thomas T.C. Cosley for joining us to shed light on his fascinating work and for sharing that fascinating story with us as well and maintaining the legacy of Buffalo Soldiers. What follows is an oath he created to signify his admiration for Buffalo Soldiers. I am a Buffalo Soldier, and as a Buffalo Soldier, I will uphold the standards and the traditions set forth by my chapter and the National Association of Buffalo Soldiers and Troopers Motorcycle Clubs. I am proud of my colors and the rich history that they represent. I will wear my colors with pride and will do all within my power to educate the general public about the rich history of the 9th and 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers. I respect my colors and my Buffalo Soldier sisters and brothers. And when my riding days come to an end, I wish to be remembered as one who served with dignity as a responsible biker and a proud Buffalo Soldier. This is Bringing On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community, here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. Are you a tweeter? You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News. Or you can always visit the WFHB's news website at wfhb.org news. As mentioned at the top of the hour, you're listening to a special Bring It On broadcast highlighting two interviews with a focus on black veterans and a retrospective look at the midterm election outcomes from the year 2014, where a significant number of Democratic seats were lost during President Obama's final two years in office. Here now is a November 10th, 2014 interview with bringing on co-anchor William Hosea and producer yours truly Clarence Boone as we discuss the outcomes of the 2014 midterm elections with Robin Winston, Democrat strategist and chairman of Progressive Thought Matters. 
In a reference to what some may term Black Tuesday, President Barack Obama said he takes responsibility for the Republican heavy results of the midterm elections and outlined ways in which he thinks his administration could be more successful when dealing with the other side of the aisle. In his last two years in the White House, the president said he plans to experiment with ways to communicate better and reach out to the Republicans more effectively. Taking a page from a recent NBC article with Republicans in control of the Senate, here are five big questions that will dominate politics in the next few months and beyond. Number one, is Obama's presidency effectively over? Two, can the Republicans govern? Three, is anyone going to challenge Hillary? Four, who can win the GOP nomination? And five, will voter anger last? Joining us by phone to help answer some of these probing questions and provide his own analysis of the national and statewide political landscape is our good friend Robin Winston, recognized political analyst, strategist, and former chair of the Indiana Democratic National Party. He is also a principal partner with the Winston Terrell Group. Robin, welcome to Bring It On. Well, thank you, Clarence. Thank you for having me on the program once again. Uh, For your listeners, I want to make it absolutely clear that I happen to be chairman of the Democratic Party from 1999 to 2001. And during that time period, we were fortunate enough to have the leadership of then-Governor Frank O'Bannon as our governor, and now and then-former uh, U.S. Senator Evan Bayh as our United States Senator, and John Gregg was a leadership in the House. So for those that uh, are just simply watching the 2014 results, I am uh, a living history that... Democrats can do well in Indiana when we are united and have a good message and have the support of diverse populations from all over the state. So, um, Winston, Mr. Winston, you um, had a pretty successful run as uh, chair of the Democratic Party in the state of Indiana. What would you do differently today to get Democrats elected and reelected to office? Well, first off, be a Democrat. I mean, you know, um, there was a candidate down in Kentucky that refused to even say whether or not she voted for the president of the United States. Now, you know, if I'm sitting there in the debate and I'm looking at Mitch McConnell, I would turn to him and say, well, Senator, I'm sure at some point in your life you made mistakes. Perhaps you voted for Richard Nixon when you were a young man. And uh, I voted for Barack Obama, and I've told the president where I disagree with him. But to try to, to then tell people I didn't vote for him and then seek their votes is hard it's disingenuous you know i want your support please remember clarence and your listeners that many of the united no not many all of the united states senators that were up in 2014 ran with barack obama in 2008 so you see states like virginia north carolina arkansas uh, that had a tremendous turnout for the president although he may not have won them he helped some of the people along by bringing people out to vote that traditionally did not vote. So the first thing is, is to be, is be proud of what we've been able to accomplish. I mean, you go past any gas station today and gas prices are two eighty-four. They're less than $3 a gallon. That hasn't been the case for a long time. That's done by making more of a priority of using alternative energy and developing other sources of energy for our country. Uh, anybody that looks at the Dow Jones looks at 17,000 points. We've never had that. When he came to office, our, our economic downturn was in a flat spin. Now, there were lots of things that were going wrong with the direction of our country financially. But now 
anyone that has any investments would tell you that their investments have done markedly better in the last eight years than they ha- than they have before. Our unemployment rate is below six percent, lowest since two thousand eight, which ironically is when he came to office. Uh, the unemployment rate's gone back down to to uh, pre-recession label uh, levels, and we were in a recession. So. If I were advising candidates this last fall, I'd say talk about those kinds of issues and then talk about kitchen table issues. You know, there are thousands, millions of families who have children with pre-existing conditions that never could get health care coverage before, or they could get it and it was extremely expensive. Now they can get it and it's not uh, extremely expensive. There are people that uh, were paying three and $4,000 a month health care premiums. They're not doing that anymore. And no longer can a doctor look at you in the face and say, I'm sorry, your child has asthma, or an insurance company, that your child has asthma, we don't have to insure them. They now have to. So if we had talked about kitchen table issues, record amount of money being directed to financial aid, that resonates with your Bloomington area listeners. Uh, If we talk about those things, and the fact that dad or mom now has a job, that does matter at the kitchen table, and that's what I would advise people to do. That's certainly what we always did. We didn't run away from being Democrats, and I certainly never ran away from being an African-American Democrat. So you have to be proud of what you're doing, and, and uh, voters are smart. Your listeners are smart. When you try to slice it and dice it, they pick up on it. So that, that would be what I would do. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the point about just being a Democrat, because it seems like the party, uh, the Democratic candidates allowed Republicans to bully them into running away from uh, some of their accomplishments. You know, the country, for the most part, agreed with the president on issues like minimum wage, immigration, background checks, taxes on the rich and corporations. So. Pay equity for women. Yeah, they agreed with him on. Yeah, um, and that's it. And you had, and they had the president um, pretty much sidelined, and you know, people with glee were running ads. Democrats were running ads against Barack Obama. A lot of good that did them. Now let's right. look back at that. They ran ads saying, "I'm not like Barack Obama," and I don't think very many of those won. I know that that Grimes did not win in Kentucky, and she ran ads saying, "I'm not like Obama." Pryor did not win in Arkansas. Warner almost lost in Virginia. Um, so if anything came out of this, it is that voters are very, very smart. And you can try to distance yourself all you want, but in the final analysis, when you go in to vote, there's a giant D beside your name, and you should live up to it. So I think that uh, makes a major, major difference in how people should direct their campaigns in the future. You know, uh, on that on that note, you have to look at such things as voter turnout, and of course they were um, announcing that turnout nationally was abysmal. Um, could you comment on that, and also turnout turn, uh, turnout rates for uh, our state, Indiana? I didn't hear your question there, Clarence. You broke up. The well, the the pundits and the analysts came out and said that the the voter turnout levels were extremely low nationally. And I was wondering if you could comment on the national turnout as well as the local uh, state statewide turnout. Well, if they tell you it's going to rain tomorrow, you're probably going to wear your raincoat and get your umbrella ready, right? People right. Are, are people are creatures of habit. So if I start the drumbeat in October that there's going to be record low turnout, then that kind of makes you think, well, it doesn't really matter. 
But what we've got to do next time is remember that, you know, the irony, Clarence, is next year, in 2015, is the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. We should have commemorated those closer to the election, just as a constant reminder to voters, particularly uh, minority voters, that, look, 50 years ago, there was no Michelle Nunn linking arms with John Lewis running for office in Georgia. There was no Mark Pryor stumping with Lottie Shackelford, the former mayor of Little Rock in Arkansas. That wasn't going on. And that would have been a reminder how far we came and maybe would have been an inducement for people to, to vote. I still think the president should have campaigned in some states. I mean, if, if you take him into uh, North Carolina and he has an event at, in the uh, research triangle there with Duke, North Carolina, North Carolina State, if he does a student rally there, that might be the impetus for some students to turn out to vote. They certainly did before, but when you're told uh, don't bring him there, then it happens. I just think that um, we have never been people that talk about low turnout. I've never used those words prior to an election. Certainly you can look at it after an election, but you know they're already forecasting snow on Thursday and Friday of this week, and people are already making adjustments because somebody said it's going to snow. Well, if you tell me it's going to be low turnout, I may take a walk and not vote on Election Day. You know, the, there are comparisons in my mind. I may be wrong that when George uh, W. Bush um, was finishing up his term, he was not taken out to different states to campaign for Republicans. He was, uh, I think at one point they were debating on whether or not to invite him to the Republican National Convention. Right. And now we have this sort of, without the people saying, there's sort of this comparison to how they treated uh, President Obama, who had uh, five volumes more successes than, than W. Well, George Bush didn't, I mean, Barack Obama didn't land on an aircraft carrier in 2003 and put a helmet under his arm and say, mission accomplished, and some five years later still had boots on the ground in not only Afghanistan, but in Iraq. Uh the financial markets of the United States hadn't crashed under Barack Obama. In fact, they were record highs, and, and Dow Jones was at 17,000 points. And gasoline was expensive under, under George W. Bush because, remember, the people with glee would remind people that Democrats campaigned that here comes a big Texas oil man uh, and his buddies to the White House, and gas is going to go through the roof. Well, it did go through the roof. But, uh, you know, when you look back on it, there's a world of difference between uh, George Bush and and Barack Obama, and here's the here's the big one, Clarence. The conservative right of center groups that voted heavily, the Tea Party, made its way to the forefront in 2010. That never was a group that was going to go any other place except for the Republican Party, and they came out in droves. They defeated people like Dick Lugar in 12. They ran campaigns. Got to remember, McConnell first had a Tea Party challenger in 14, but in Barack Obama's case core constituencies that could have come out and voted this time, we shouldn't have run from, and him coming out to campaign wouldn't have meant that those groups, minority voters in the South would have said, oh, no, here comes Barack Obama. I'm, I'm definitely not voting now. So we were going after a different demographic, hoping to assuage their concerns, and at the final analysis, when they went to that booth, they looked around and said, you're still a Democrat, and I don't like Democrats, and I'm not going to vote for you. At the same time, the people that could have been for us and had an incentive, inducement, enthusiasm level to vote for us were basically relegated to the sidelines. And, and uh, in many cases, 
the president wasn't able to go out and campaign to seek their votes. There is uh, the main thing that I hear about Washington now is that it does not work. It's broken. And the president seems to take most of the blame for that. But I really think the pundits especially have a very short memory because it wasn't too long ago that one party vowed not to work with him, even to the point of shutting down the government. But they were successful in shifting the blame to him. Why is it that Democrats are so ineffective at getting their message out while Republicans are just the opposite? Well, first off, their consistency of message, and there's not a, there's not a lot of diverse in their message. In our party, we are dealing with immigration reform, affirmative action, access to quality education, access to equity for women in pay. They have staked their claim. I mean, there's, there's no group telling the Republicans that you need to be, after their platform and, and their leadership didn't vote for pay equity, hey, by the way, I'm going to take a walk or I'm not going to participate if you don't go for pay equity. They stayed the course and stayed on message. Now, we've got people that are booing the president at rallies because he didn't take on immigration reform like he wanted to, and uh, nobody's booing them at rallies because they didn't. So it's kind of like comparing, you know, you have, if you have a lot of variables in an equation and you only have a few variables in the equation, it's easier to stay on message because your message isn't as fractured. You know, if you're a jazz station, you play jazz. If you're a sushi restaurant, you serve sushi. But if you're a family dining place, you have a lot of different things on the menu, and some things you're not always going to get right, and some things people are not going to like. And that's what happens in our party. We have so many divergent and diverse interests. It's hard all the time to get them focused on what are the key message points. And if you do make those key message points with a divergent and diverse party like we have, you're bound to alienate some group, so therefore your message is somewhat fractured. But if your message is jobs, education, taxes, and security of the nation, and you just stay on those message and those themes and, and, uh, and just articulate those throughout, you're going to find that you're going to have a lot of support coming down the way. But if I have to go in and debate, you know, common wage, for the building trades versus common wage for the manufacturing groups and then turn around and uh, have people in my party upset that we're not a single-payer system, that we should have universal health care, and then shift over and talk about, well, what about the DREAM Act? Well, how many people come in on the DREAM Act? If you say I'm against the DREAM Act, there's no cutting around the edges of how many people should be able to access the United States through the DREAM Act. So your message is, is pretty much a bottom-line message and I think easier to articulate. Getting uh, back to the questions we sort of posed at the beginning during the uh, introduction, uh, one sort of stated, is the Obama presidency effectively over? And if, when responding to that, if you can point out some things that the Republicans more, will more than likely try to reverse now that they have control of uh, Congress. Well, I think the... Uh XL pipeline is going to be a, an issue that's going to come right to the forefront. Uh, the president has said he wants to make sure that there are not environmental impacts by extending a, a, a pipeline through the United States, through some very, very uh, bucolic areas and areas that need to be protected. I believe that they'll, they will push that through. I believe clearly that some elements of the, uh, the president's effort on Affordable Care Act will be somewhat reduced. I don't know how far but uh, they will probably be to accrue benefits to the hospitals, not necessarily to the consumers. Uh, 
And the other area that I think is going to be in foreign policy, uh, we have tried to steadfastly stay out of uh, major conflicts abroad, but now John McCain will be the head of the Armed Services Committee, and he has been a hawk on the Middle East from the beginning, and I could see that there would be an effort made to push additional funding for activity in the Middle East. I don't know that that would be uh, right on the agenda first off. But then last, Clarence, is this is all a precursor to 2016. And I think you're going to see a lot of issues coming along the way that will accrue a benefit to the Republican nominee by actions of both the House and the Senate as they set up the, the real prize, which is winning the presidency in 16. Yeah, Mr. Winston, this is William again. Um, given that the president still has the power of the veto and that the Republicans don't seem to be able to control the Tea Party within their party, can the Republicans govern? They can govern, William, as long as they don't overreach. Uh, they don't have, big, and, and they have to remember that come 2014 or 2016, things reverse for them. Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania is up. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin is up. Rob Portman in Ohio is up. These were all states that were won by President Obama in, 20, in 2012 and in 2008. So now they're on the defensive against candidates in that cycle. If they overreach, then you know Mitch McConnell can order only so much letterhead because he's not going to be able to use it after 2017 because he'll no longer be the majority leader. So they have to be careful not to overreach. And that'll be the real test of their party, is can they govern without overreaching? The more they overreach, the more it accrues the benefit for our Senate candidates in 16 and definitely for our presidential candidate in 16. You know, uh, along with the talk of the uh, affordable health care and, and now the conversations of uh, trying to gut it, as well as the Supreme Court announcing that they'll review certain elements of it, um, do you think that... That third rail, as, as they've been publicly saying, which is immigration, and the president's promise to address that before the end of the year, uh, could be the next uh, sort of uh, cataclysmic event up on the Hill? No, and I don't think so, and it's, and it's just pragmatism. If nothing else, Mitch McConnell is pragmatic. I mean, he used a woman of color in his ads in Kentucky to close out the campaign. He talked about how his office provided uh, support to her. She led by saying that... Uh, she voted for Obama, but she was voting for, for McConnell for a U.S. Senate. Uh, no, they can't, because things like uh, states like New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, California, and, and slowly but surely Texas, Florida, are becoming more and more uh, states with a large Latino-Hispanic population. And if they do that, then once again, as I was saying before, if they overreach then they make things pretty tough on their 2016 nominee. Nothing's really changed in a lot of places, uh, William and Clarence, in that if you look at the electoral map, it changed under Obama because we as a party moved to the West and quit trying to concentrate on turning the South. We got numbers high in the South, and we won Virginia, and we won North Carolina, and we made ourselves competitive in, in Georgia. But in the future, it's going to be Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado. Those are going to be bellwether states. California, we've not lost in a long time. Those are going to be bellwether states for our electoral map. 
so if you determine that and look at the large number of Latino, Hispanic residents in those states, uh, you would be a fool to take on uh, something draconian relative to immigration reform. And President Obama's uh, pick for nomination for um, attorney general, uh, do you think they'll at least hear this during this session, or do you think they'll wait till the beginning of the year? And what do you think the outcome of that will be? I think they'll confirm her. She's been confirmed twice now as United States attorney. Um, so she's, uh, she's already met the vetting procedure. If you want to make it a political, then you run the gamut of, I'm not so sure that African-American votes are, are necessarily uh, would be the lead on this, but she is female, eminently qualified, yet another Harvard grad. And uh, if you go ahead and take out, that's what I was saying about overreach, then folks like us will then turn right back around and use it against you as we get ready to make uh, uh, an election ready for 2016 for president and for some of those battleground states. They have to defend more U.S. Senate contests in 16 than they had to defend in 14. What does that do for um, the outcome of Ferguson, Missouri? I don't know. I didn't look back, Clarence, to see if those folks got registered to vote. But the voting registration numbers there were abysmal. Now, I don't know if they got... I mean, they really were abysmal. To have a population so overwhelmingly of color and then to stand and say, well, I don't know why we don't have more African-Americans on the police force. Well, you don't have any African-Americans on the city council. Or maybe you do. I don't remember. Uh, You definitely don't have a mayor and you're a majority-minority community. Uh, So hopefully what happens in Ferguson is obviously less violence. Uh, We have to see how this thing is adjudicated relative to Officer Wilson. But then you come back around and decide how you want to handle getting registered to vote, because that's really where policy changes. That's really where policy changes is to have folks elected that uh, are in sync with values that matter to people of color. Right, and and I met that um, sort of juxtaposed to whether or not uh, this 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 competent, very competent, very effective lady is um, successful in being appointed as uh, attorney general. Um, that's one of the cases that she'll have to handle after Eric Holder's departure, and I'm just curious um, what that may unfold for her. Well, Clarence, what, I, what I've learned in government, I've been fortunate enough to be a chief of staff in city government. I've been fortunate enough to be uh, an assistant to the then lieutenant governor in state government. Obviously, I was fortunate to be a state chair and now run my own business. I tell people and clients all the time, the most important thing you have is tone, the tone that you set, just like the tone you set on this, on this um, show. You know, you are organized. Uh, you try to have diverse guest, but you're there and you set a tone. Well, the president, by virtue of making this recommendation, has set a tone. We're going to have somebody in that office that is not going to be somebody that just looks like us but doesn't care about issues that matter. She's going to care about issues that matter, and she will set the tone in the Department of Justice. So the Civil Rights Division chief will not be somebody that's going to, would never be somebody that's going to come down the hall and say, uh, Mr. Attorney General, Madam Attorney General, we're just going to let Ferguson go by the wayside. Let's not bother with it. It's too controversial. That's not going to happen because just by her appointment, he has set the tone. 
I mean, I remember looking uh, one time he was coming down the steps of Air Force One, and with him was Willie Mays. And he'd flown Willie Mays out to go to the All-Star game with him. That's just setting the tone. doesn't mean that I think Willie Mays is better than any other player ever, but it just says you have somebody there that understands just what a subtle hint of being visible with the president can mean. And that kind of tone he's already set by reaching out to her and tapping her to be attorney general. It's not going to be a long term. She only has to find out, uh, serve out the rest of Holder's term. But still, it's just the tone that she set that, you know what, that's great. We're beginning to see it now in the judiciary. Slowly but surely, those appeals and federal judges are the results of appointments made by Obama, some of them recess appointments, but also they're Clintonites, and you're getting judgments like on same-sex marriage and things like that from federal courts that you probably would not have got if you'd had Mitt Romney appointed federal judges or, or McCain appointed federal judges. So it's the tone that you're setting by virtue of being in that position, which still makes him very viable. It's uh, The other day they told me that they did a redrafting of rules for HBCUs, financial aid. That's once again the tone. Black farmers are getting money unlike they ever got before. That's the tone. So the quiet tone by the executive leadership is something that we should keep in mind that he is doing. Now it's not, civil rights is not something that's opposed by the President of the United States. In fact, it's something that's stressed. Bringing On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. We hope you enjoyed listening to our Bringing On interviews for this 2018 Veterans Day. Bringing On's producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone. Production support comes from WFHB's news director, Wes Martin. Bringing On's board engineer was Teo Wilson. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam. Be sure to tune in next Monday, November the 19th at 6 p.m. for a retrospective look at this year's midterm election outcomes with Congressional Representative Candidate Liz Watson and Robert Stone, expert on the Affordable Care Act and Medicare coverage. All this on the next exciting Bring It On broadcast right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.